So here's where we're going to be. I'm going to jump right in. First Samuel 16. Some of you who know uh, my background know that uh, the heart condition of the Frank family is typically not real good. In other words, uh, you can go back through my family's history, particularly even recent history, and you can see a great deal of concern to, uh, to understand the condition of my heart. And I say that to say this, my, uh, my dad actually had a quadruple bypass uh, when he was just 40 years of age. Now, that's a long time ago, but a quadruple bypass surgery is very serious now. But you go back years and years, decades ago, and that was like very, very serious where they would take like veins and stuff out of his legs and then bypass blockage that had basically stopped up in four different places uh, in his heart. They're like, listen, if we don't do this, it is going to be catastrophic. Now, he, uh, it did help. But it was, it was five years later where he had a massive heart attack, died in his sleep, left behind uh, my mom and four boys. And it was obviously life-changing. And uh, just a, a few years ago, my mom actually had had a very, very serious heart attack along with a bunch of other stuff. But the heart attack is what made so many things very, very difficult uh, for her. And so not to your surprise, whether it be an insurance company when I'm getting life insurance or whether it be a new doctor that I go to, or whether it just be me, it's like, all right, we got to drill down and figure out what is the condition of this guy's heart, all right? Because if, if we don't see something, if we don't see something, it could be catastrophic. And so they look at it and they check it and they examine me and they ask all these questions and then they give me suggestions. They give me their opinion on what you should do. Watch your weight, um, I, I exercise this way, eat these kinds of foods, all this kind of stuff because the whole idea is, listen, you got one heart and if you lose that one, it is going to be have huge consequences, not just for you, but also for your loved ones. And so here's the point. The point is we're going to look at a passage today that has one verse in there that you probably, even if you didn't grow up in Bible study, even if you didn't grow up in church, you might've heard the one verse, but it basically is the verse that says, you know what? Man looks at the outward, but God looks at what? At the heart. What does that mean? Particularly when it's about a guy who says, you know what, that's a man after my own heart. And yet this same guy committed adultery and murder. And he said that about him. What's the, what's the whole deal? And so 1 Samuel 16 is where we're going to look at. And my challenge to us is this. Uh, God gave you a heart. And in scripture, there's this uh, tension uh, about a theology of the heart. On one hand, it says, you know what? Our heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can even know it? And yet on the other hand, if you become a Christ follower, it says, you know what? I'm going to give you a new heart. And, and the heart in the Bible is not the physical heart, okay? I know we're talking about something kind of immaterial, so I, I brought Skipper here to kind of help me as a continual visual for you. And it is this, in the Bible, the heart is that immaterial part of you that can know God. It's that, it's that part of you that is a mixture of your mind, your will, your emotions, your soul. Right? It's, that, it's that part that God challenges us to cultivate. One place in the Bible, it says your heart is like a garden, all right? You take care of it, you tend it, you fertilize it, you water it, you will have a bumper crop of God's grace in your life and it'll affect you and your family and your kids and your legacy and your work and everything. But if you neglect it, but if you just don't pay attention to it, it will by default grow dry and weary and will have consequences for those around you. So let me uh, give you a little bit of the context here. First Samuel is a book that was written to a nation, the nation of Israel, who is in search of a king. 
They were, the whole thing is about their search for a king. Now, God has said, listen, I will be your king. You don't need a king. And they said, no, we want a king. We want a king like everybody else. We want a king that we can see and touch and smell and can lead us into battle. And God says, all right, I, that's, it's a bad idea. You're going to regret this decision, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Which parenthetically, that is the question really any morning, but this morning in particular is who is the king of your life? Who is the king of your life? Who calls the shots? Who is the boss? Who do you depend on for security? You get that question right, then, you're, then your past is taken care of, your present is secure, and your future, you know what? It's like, I know who holds my future. That is the, that is the question. And um, spoiler alert, even though we're gonna be looking at a guy named David and Saul and Samuel, it's the whole book in 1 Samuel, in search of a king, it's really about the king of kings. David is a good king. He's actually, to some degree, the king that Israel always wanted, but even David really flames out. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. And the whole point is David was pointing to Jesus. David was pointing to the king that would not disappoint you, the king that would not fail. He's pointing to Jesus just like every other book in the Bible. And so as we look at him, it is about David, it is about Samuel, it is to some degree about Saul, but it's really about, it's really about Jesus. So before we jump in, here's, here's two more sentences, three more sentences about the context. Three characters, really two in the story, three that we'll kind of bring in. There's a guy named David, all right, he's the second king of Israel. There's a guy that I'll allude to named Saul, he's the first king of Israel, and there's a guy named Samuel. Samuel is the prophet, he's the preacher. And so what God does is God says initially, he says, go find a king. He finds a guy named Saul. Saul looks like a king. Saul would have been on scholarship, all right? He is the guy that's handsome. He's tall. He's athletic. He looks like a king. And what happens is he starts off decent. He starts off actually pretty good, pretty good. But as oftentimes happen, as he gets power, his heart, his heart gets corrupted. It gets proud. It starts to deceive itself. It shows up in things like disobedience. And so where we are now in the story is God is like, I'm rejecting Saul as king and I'm gonna pick a king. And so that's where we are. So 1 Samuel 16, we're gonna do, uh, because uh, most of the stuff we're looking at right now are narratives. A lot of times we'll kind of almost change up how we go through it. We'll kind of do some work on the front end before we get to the principles. And I'll try to scatter in some stuff in the meantime. So 1 Samuel 16, one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Now, just right there, again, this is a guy, this is like the preacher who has poured himself into a guy, tried to make him successful, and the guy just flames out. And so Samuel is grieving over the fact that God is moving on, that Saul is no longer gonna be king. How long will you do that? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. Basically what that means is the horn with oil is the way you would anoint a new king. And so he's like, hey, get ready. We're turning the page, we have a new chapter. He's not gonna be king and here's what he tells him to do. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite from Bethlehem. All right, Bethlehem was like a, I mean, that's like, I don't even know what would that be like. That would be more out of the way than like Marion. All right, and we were talking about way out of the way, nobody paid any attention to this one. And he's like, I want you to go there. He says, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So pretty self-explanatory. Telling you where to go, who to see when you're there, and what happens is somewhere in his sons, that's the king that I have appointed. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, king right here, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. Why would he do that? Because if you go looking for a new king when the old king is still in place, doesn't go well typically. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
So God says, I'm going to give you an alibi. I'm going to give you cover. I know it's dangerous. I know it's difficult, but I'm going to give you cover. Basically, go to this town, act like you're going there to preach a revival, do a worship service. And he says, That's, that'll be cover for you. But invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So go do this, and I'm going to show you which one when you get there. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Hey, loved ones, just real clear. Obedience is a big deal. Obedience is a big deal. So even before, as we walk through the story, what has God commanded you to do? What has God told you to do? What has God led you to do that is yet to be done? One of the things about a heart that is getting corrupted is either disobedience or partial obedience. It's like I'll go some of the way, but I'm not going to go all of the way. And so what happens is Samuel's a good example. He did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? You're like, what is going on there? A um, couple of things could have been happening. Number one, they could have been scared of Saul, but more than likely Samuel is kind of like the, and this will kind of date me, Samuel is kind of like the Chuck Norris of the Old Testament, if you know what I mean. I mean, he is that guy. I mean, the chapter before he like chops up this king because this king is being crazy. And he's like, I'll show you. And so he's that guy. And some of you are like, Chuck who? I mean, okay, your, your spiritual assignment for the afternoon then would be to Google Chuck Norris, all right? Or Chuck Norris jokes, all right? Some of my people are like, yeah, I know Chuck Norris. Again, Chuck Norris jokes are, Chuck Norris is basically that, that tough guy, all right? Some of those Chuck Norris jokes, you know, he, he blows bubbles with beef jerky. Um, you know, when he gets pulled over, he lets the police off without a warning. Okay, he's that, he's that guy. In other words, he's the one that's like super, super tough. They're like, have you come peaceably? Or you come to whoop tail. What have you come to do? And so here's what he says. And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Elib and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now listen to me. He is about to make the same dumb move that he made when he got Saul. He's looking at Elib and he's thinking the same thing with Saul. This guy looks like a king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's fast. He would look great in a uniform, all those things. I mean, you ever know anybody that uh, no matter how much you try to implore them, they make the same dumb decisions over and over again? It's like, don't date those kind of guys. Every time you date those kind of guys, they treat you bad and it ends up in the bad place. Listen, every time you try to cut corners in your business, it always ends up bad. I mean, yeah, we all know people like that. We all are people like that at times. It's like the guy in the mirror does that all the time. And so what he's doing is he's about to make the same mistake as before. But here's, here's the, uh, the verse. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. And here it is. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord, all right, what's it say? What's it say? He looks on the heart. Um, now, I think when we say that, we would all say, of course the inside is more important than the outside. Of course it is. I mean, Bruce, nobody would think the opposite of that. We all know inside is more important than outside. I think we lie. That's what I think. I think we lie. We do lie. We say some stuff we don't actually believe because we don't actually practice it. For example, um, 
They say the average American spends 30 to 40 minutes getting ready to leave the house. Some of you are like, don't do, do not, do not elbow your spouse. Just don't, it'll go poorly for you. Bad plan. 30 to 40 minutes to get ready to leave the house. Question just on the floor. How much time did you spend this weekend or this morning getting ready to, to actually go to God's house and get a word from God? Here's another one. Uh, the average person spends four grand a year, $4,000 a year on stuff like creams and oils and makeup and all that kind of stuff. The average American gives less than 2,000 to any kind of charity whatsoever. So the point is, it's not that the outward is not important. You don't neglect the outward, but if the emphasis is on the outward, I would just say uh, time and gravity are not your friends. It's just, they're just not. Time and gravity will betray you no matter how much you focus on that. So the point is, what God is saying, this is good news. It's good news and bad news. Some of you live under the horrible stress. I gotta be something impressive and I gotta impress my dad and I gotta be this person. And this is like great news. You know what? That God's looking at your heart. On the other hand, it's kind of bad news because who in here would be able to say, you know what? My heart is in perfect condition right now. It's exactly the kind of heart that God is looking for. So um, as we walk through this text, we're gonna come back to it and say, all right, what am I supposed to do here? So let's, let's, finish, out the, let's finish out the text. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one, probably because he had a goofy name. Then Jesse the Shammah passed, he made, Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then, uh, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So this is like Old Testament Cinderella. All the sons come by, they try to put their foot into the glass slipper and it never fits. And here's what, here's, this is actually, there's a little humor in here. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Uh, I, I gave you one job, go get your sons. And here's what he says. And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, He's keeping sheep. So dad's already labeled the youngest. And what he's labeled him, and you, can't, you can barely even tell how much derision is in this statement. How much labeling is in this statement. Even the dad had this label of what David would be, and he says it this way. He says, I have the youngest, which is loosely translated kind of like the runt of the litter. It's not just the youngest, it's the one that has the least significance in their family. Then it said, he is, he says, behold, in other words, don't miss this. He's out there keeping sheep. Now listen, some of us have romanticized that whole shepherd deal through Christmas programs. And you're like, oh, that's such an awesome job sitting out there under the moonlight with a staff and, and doing the, listen, this was the worst job at, this was the worst job in the whole Bible. It's a terrible job. It's like cleaning toilets today. Nobody's like, I want to grow up and I want to be a shepherd. Nobody did that. It's like, listen, he's out there keeping the sheep that cannot be that cannot be the future king of Israel, just cannot, cannot be. So what appears to be Samuel getting a little bit uh, ticked off here in verse uh, 12, here's what he says in verse 12. And he sent, I'm sorry, yeah. And he sent and brought him and he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. For this is he. And I'm not trying to be harsh here at all. So he sends somebody off to get him. He says, we're, gonna, we're just gonna stand until he comes back. 
We're not gonna sit down. In other words, I gave you one job to do, bring your sons and you didn't even do that. So we're gonna stand, somebody goes off and gets him. And when he gets him, the description is this. He is ready. Ready is actually, there's a difference of opinion on what ready means. Some say redhead, you know, some say, some say redhead like a ginger and others say like disheveled. Like, dude, you just came in the field and you're, you just take a bath. That's what it means. But then it says, and he has beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Now this is a decent description for like a Jonas Brothers or a boy band or something. This is not what you think of as a description for like warrior king. He's handsome and he's got beautiful eyes. Nobody ever said that about a warrior king. Yeah, it looks like a Navy SEAL, doesn't say that. But what he does is uh, the Lord said, arise, anoint him, boom, this is, this is him, this is him. And then here's the way it goes. And I don't want you to miss 13. And really, I don't want you to miss the white space in between verse 13 and verse 14. Because then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So that's kind of the whole story. And um, the question is, what does this have to do with us in Western North Carolina you know, uh, right now? What does this have to do with my family? What is it? You know, I came to church to figure out what to do with my son who's driving us crazy. What does this have to do with us? This has a ton to do with all of us. And the idea is, is, uh, is right here. How do I make sure that this is actually healthy? Because again, above all else, guard your heart. Why? For from it flows the wellsprings of life, the book of Proverbs says. And the question is, how do I catch it before something happens? Quick little story. Uh, uh, when we lived in Houston, we were about to move in a new location. We'd worked on this. We Anyway, we were moving out from one area and we were moving out on the main highway as a church. And we'd obviously worked on it for about a year and a half or so. Three days before we were about to move in, I had just the tiniest, tiniest little bit of what probably, I, I assumed it was just a little heartburn, all right? And so I call up my wife and my wife is a nurse and, she, and I go, hey, babe, I just got a tiny little, just a little something. I think I probably ate something bad at Papacitos or something. So, and she goes, hey, just to be safe, why don't you just pop down to Northeast Hospital and just run into the ER real quick and let them, and, and they'll it'll take, you, it'll take you 30 minutes. And my wife, godly lady, she's also sly because she knew as a nurse, if I walked in there, what would happen? True story, I walk in there, I'm dressed like in khakis and loafers and whatever. I mean, I'm looking like prep dog and I walk in there and you got people all over that have like open wounds and blood going everywhere. And I kind of walk in there like, uh, I was embarrassed just to go in there because they're having to wait. And I go up there and I go, hey, uh, here's my name, blah, blah, blah. I just got a little, little just, a, just a little bit of chest pain. I mean, nothing visible. I promise you, man. I was in a back room in like 10 minutes. I mean, they had stuff strapped to me and then about an hour later, I'm in the back of an ambulance going downtown to St. Luke's. The next day, I'm on some treadmill crying like a baby because they're putting me through this stress test. The whole point is this. What they understood is, listen, fell over there. He has a cut. We're going to stitch him up. He's going to be fine. You die of a heart attack right in front of us. It is going to be chaos. Same thing I want you to understand. You gotta dig a little bit here to think, what is the, I'm gonna give you some examples. What's the condition of my heart? Because if you don't catch it now, there will be a point, just like King Saul, when it has tragic consequences for you. And so I wanna try to give you two. And I initially had like 10, and I just like, okay, let me just give you two umbrella ones. 
Here's the first one. You're going to kind of balk at it for just a second, but here's the first one. Pursue humility. Pursue humility. Now, humility is not some kind of like, oh, I'm a doormat and I'm just over here. I feel so bad about who I am. I have low self-esteem. That's not it at all. And the reason I said pursue humility, because it's not like, hey, I'm humble now. (laughs) It doesn't happen. The best we can say is we are proud people in pursuit of humility. But the reason that you do that, number one, you see it in, in, you don't see it in Saul's life and you do see it in David's life. See verse 13? Verse 13, you would think verse 14 would simply say this. I mean, after all this stuff and he's anointed king and he's gonna be the next king of Israel, Saul is done, it's David's time. And then verse 14 starts and you don't hear anything about him as king. Truth of the matter is he gets stuck back in the pasture with the sheep cleaning poop for some more years until he's actually becomes king. And what you see in when you see David's life and when you see David's life, you're like, how is this guy? How is this guy of all the stuff that he does? How is he actually a man after God's own heart? Because he pursued humility. Somehow, some way he never forgot. He, even when he was king, he's like, you know what? I'm a sheep. As the king, he writes Psalm 23 that you have on your coffee mug. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. Even as kings, and by the way, again, we think of a fluffy little lamb. I mean, sheep back then, that is not a compliment at all. Sheep were dumb, sheep were dependent. Sheep would follow the rear end in front of them. That's all they would do. They would walk off a cliff. They would get turned over. The shepherd would have to come over. And David's like, you know what? I'm king, but I'm still a sheep. I still remember where I came from. I'm still grateful to God for what he did. So here's what I'm gonna say. Most of us think of humility as some kind of esoteric sort of attitude that we have. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this. In the Bible, humility is much more about action than it is about attitude. Now, it definitely has to have a root. Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself to a point of death, even death on a cross. So it is an attitude, but it's an attitude that is very visible. It's something that you and I can only show, but we can cultivate. In other words, he says, when he says, humble yourself, he is saying, I wanna pour grace into your life. Man, please hear me on this. I know some of you are like, this does not have anything to do with me. It does. The half-brother of Jesus, James says, listen, God is opposed to the proud, but he pours out grace to the humble. You need some grace in your life. You need some grace with your parenting. You need some grace in your business. You need some grace in your marriage. Then it's a great, you're like, it's a bad time in my marriage. It's a great time to humble yourself. It's a bad, it's a bad time with my kids. It's a great time to humble yourself. It's a bad time in my business. It is a great time to humble yourself. And what you see in David's life is over and over and over again, he does humble himself. And so uh, here's what I would just say. What are some ways that we can do that? All right, let me give you a few. How do you know if you're like super, because it's as scary as uh, God is opposed to the proud. I mean, that is, that is scary to think that God would oppose us. And the book of James, by the way, was written primarily to believers. So he's actually saying as a believer, you can be, go, you can be trying to do something and God would be resisting you. That's frightening. You know what's even more frightening? Is I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says you pray for humility. What you see repeatedly is God admonishing us to humble ourselves. Humble yourself. And the only alternative, if we won't do it, then he will humble us. 
And the way that you see God humbling people is by putting us in humiliating circumstances. And so if you're like me, it's like, I'm so proud, I would rather humble myself than God humiliate me. And so how do we actually cultivate that which brings humility? Here's four or five things, um, kind of a contrast. And you see this in Saul in the opposite way. How about this? Um, apologize when you're actually confronted with something you've done wrong. Some of you all actually, some of you couples, you drove to church today and you came in here and you sang the songs and literally you had a fight on the way to church. You had a fight on the way to church. You're like, how does he know? I just know, all right? I know you had a fight and you came out of church and a greeter was out in the parking lot and he was like, and as soon as those doors opened, it was like, duh, crystal smile. It's all good. It's all well. You know, somebody needs to apologize. Like, you know what? I was wrong. And that is so hard to say. I have a hard time saying it right now. I, I mean, it almost sticks in the throat, doesn't it? I was wrong. It's hard to say. And um, you probably would not be surprised that I get quite a bit of rebuke. I mean, I do. Part of it is well-deserved and part of it maybe not as much so, but there's a lot of rebuke. Can I just tell you what I have noticed? There's a trend that the Lord does is he usually, he will often rebuke me through somebody who has a lot more grievous stuff to be rebuked than I do, I think, right? So when somebody rebukes me, whether it be an email or whatever, I tend to bow up. Well, you hadn't been to Connect Group in six years, okay? That's kind of... Hypothetically, that's what I would actually, that's what I should actually think. But what I've noticed is um, there's almost always, almost always at least a kernel of truth to what they're saying. And that's hard to admit. So somebody's rebuked you. Are you teachable? Does somebody have to rebuke you for the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? If it's like the 20th time, loved one, you're not teachable. You're like, well, nobody tells me what to do and nobody ever corrects me. It's not because you're perfect, bro. It's because they're scared of what your reaction will be when they try to correct you or you have no community. You either have no community or everybody thinks, you know what, if I do this, he's like Mount St. Helens and he will explode. It's just true. Or um, let me just hammer this nail one more time. Pride will keep you out of community. Humility, you understand you need community. Last week, we hammered this nail over and over and over and over again, and it was so awesome. So many people, it's like, I need community. I need a connection. I need a connection. But the truth be known, a lot of folks are like, yeah, maybe later, maybe next week, maybe never at all. I'll re-engage when something else happens. And what you're basically saying is, God, forget what you say. I'm just going to use you as an opinion board. I'm not actually going to do what you say. It's just community. It's just, it's just pride if you don't. Or serve. I ain't go serve somebody. Let somebody out before you in the parking lot. Serve and help with babies or something. Because when we don't say it, what we're saying is, you know what? I deserve to be served. You serve me. Me. It's about me. You know how opposite that is in Jesus? Right, but the, the week, not the week, the day before he's about to die on a cross for your sins, what's he doing? He's washing the disciples' stinking feet. He's not thinking about it. He's not praying about it. He's doing it. The Bible says he takes the towel, he takes the water, he actually washes their feet. And so when we say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, part of that is doing the stuff nobody else wants to. It could be serving. Uh, it's just getting in the word. Like I'm, uh, uh, Pride says, you don't, need that, you don't need that one year Bible deal. You don't need to. 
just kind of do it yourself. Get in there, listen to what the preacher said. He's the one that's getting paid to do this. So let him feed you and then you just, whatever. That's pride. It's pride. God's like, I want to pour grace on your life and all you're doing instead of a funnel, it's like a thimble full. That's all you're getting. Some of you are actually like, I, I want to want to, but I just don't want to, which is a great confession to make, by the way. And I've been there. I have been there. Come on now, this is church. You've not ever been to where you're like, you know what, I know I need to read the Bible, I just don't want to. I know I need to pray, I just don't want to pray. Come on now, come on, it's church. Shame the devil, tell the truth, all right? Yeah, I want to. Then you know what you do? You just confess a cold heart to God. You think God's up there going, no way, preacher doesn't want to read the Bible. No, he already knows. And so a confession is, God, a please fire my heart back up again. Here's what Tozer said. Great, great little prayer by Tozer. He said, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, I want, I want to want thee. That's a good prayer to pray. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirstier still. Give me grace to rise up and follow you. Let me just do a couple more. Parents, some of you have not actually taken advantage of that little Jesus storybook Bible. God has blessed you with children. And because either you didn't grow up in church or you don't know what you're gonna say or you might be embarrassed or they might ask a question that you don't know how to answer, You've not jumped on and just simply taken a Jesus storybook Bible and read the Bible once a week to your kids. And the reason is pride. And what God's saying, if you will humble yourself, I will pour out so much grace on you and your family, you won't believe. And so one of the choices you would make is like, I'm gonna just, you know what? Hey, Skippy, I don't really know exactly what this Bible means, but we're just gonna read it. We're gonna catch up and we're gonna read it and then we're gonna talk about what it means. But that would be awesome. So um, I would just say, just pursue and um, here's what it's going to lead to at times. This is just the last point. Repent when God shows you a change of direction. That's all repentance means. Now, if you didn't grow up in church or especially here in Western North Carolina, maybe you go down to the drum circle or whatever, and you get these guys that holding up that, holding up that big sign that's like, repent for the end is near. And the, the, the unsaid message is repentance is for the lost world out there. And Loved one, the Bible says repentance is for you and I. Now, I understand repentance is the first one-time decision you made when you were going this direction and you turned and you embraced Jesus by faith, that what you did on the cross counted for me. That's repentance and faith. But do you understand that the lifestyle of a believer is one of repentance? It's like, you know what? God points this out. I'm gonna change direction. Luther said it this way. The Christian life is simply to begin again. Proverbs 24 says, the righteous man, he falls down seven times, but he gets back up. Sometimes people call Christians hypocrites. Sometimes they're correct. And sometimes it's a misunderstanding that Christians will not sin. The question about your understanding of the gospel is not, do you ever sin? The real, the real marker is, what do I do when I fall? Do I run from God in shame or do I run back to him in repentance? That's really the marker. Do I, understand, do I understand the gospel? Um, here's the, uh, I thought about this for all weekend long, one verse, and don't even turn to it, just listen to this one verse. Fast forward, we'll unpack it a little bit more in a couple weeks. Psalm 32 is written by King David after he's got a lot of scars, 
a lot of stuff. Most theologians say that Psalm 32 is actually written after he's had some time to reflect on the goodness and the grace of God after he did all this terrible stuff. And Psalm 32, but particularly verse two says this. He says, blessed, it means happy. It means spiritually prosperous. It's a description of pouring out grace. Blessed is the man, blessed is the person whom the Lord does not count his iniquity against him, comma, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does that mean? When is the last time you were actually able to walk into work tomorrow with a clean conscience? When's the last time you were able to walk into your home with not a clean heart, but a cleansed heart? Because here's what it finally dawned on me. I think David understands the gospel more than almost any other Old Testament character. One of the things we've tried to drill home is the fact that the whole book is about Jesus. The whole book, even the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. But they only understand it in different lengths. Some of them are like, okay, I kind of understand it. Other ones seem to be like crystal clear. David seems to have it a bunch just because of the language he uses. But this one stuck out. Blessed is the man whose the Lord does not count his iniquity against him. You know what that sounds like? And do you know what theologians call that now? New Testament theology says that is imputed righteousness. It means that Jesus gave, if you're in Christ, he gave his righteousness to your account. Not just that you're forgiven, but he took all of his resume and put it to your account. Sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 5 that says, you know what? I will not hold their sins to their account. But then two verses later, it says, in him, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And loved one, I'll just say this. If you don't understand that, you will not repent. We will rationalize. We will because we don't like what we think about when God exposes stuff about our dating life or our sex life or our money life. We think, man, he's angry, he's upset at me. And what you have to understand is if you're in Christ, all the reason that God had to be upset with you was poured out on Jesus on the cross. All the wrath, all the anger, all the justice got poured out on you. And when he wooed you and when he saved you, he doesn't have buyer's remorse. And that's where you gotta understand. Buyer's remorse is you get something like, man, I paid too much for that. Man, I wish I hadn't bought that. And there is no buyer's remorse if you're in Christ. God opens up the box and sees you in there and he brings you out. He's like, man, this thing really is busted up. It's got a broken leg. It's messed up. It's got hangups, you know what? But I love this thing. I'll take it. I paid full price for this. And when you understand that, then we run to God when we fail. Like, you know what, I'm going this direction. I want to run back to God. I want to run to abundance. And so here's the song that I was thinking about. Oh, I was actually going way back. Some of you are like, uh, man, you went old school all weekend long. And uh, there's, a, there's, an old, there's an old album. I think it's called I Heart Revolution by Hillsong. Way, way, way back in the day. They got this little version of a hymn. that's like, what can wash away my sin? Man, I wish I could sing. Man, I wish in heaven I'm going to sing Good, I'm gonna sing like E-Man. I mean, that's what I'm gonna sing like in heaven. For right now, just imagine for a second. I mean, just like, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 